Bring It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. Good evening. I'm Clarence Boone, and welcome to Bring It On, a multiple award-winning radio broadcast. In our 18th year, as Indiana's only weekly community radio show, committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting the African-American community. And good evening. I'm William Hosea. Our current political landscape can best be described as a three-ring circus. We are not at a loss for topics to discuss. There are Trump's latest legal woes, the proposed national divorce by GOP poster child Marjorie Taylor Greene, the release of over 44,000 hours of surveillance footage of the January 6th insurrection to Fox News by Speaker Kevin McCarthy, and a couple of U.S. Supreme Court cases addressing social media and North Carolina election laws. And let's not forget a multi-billion dollar defamation lawsuit against Fox News Network. Well, to help us understand the legal ramifications of all that we've just scratched the surface on, we've invited back Indiana University law professor Joseph Hoffman, an award-winning scholar and Harry Pratter professor of law emeritus and past recipient of the Law School Gavel Award. Professor Hoffman, welcome to Bring It On. Thanks for having me back. And um, I, I hope I didn't omit any new um, award or distinction you've received. Every year you're receiving something new. <laughs> I didn't see the Nobel Peace Prize in there, but I'm sure that's just a matter of formality. It'll be announced this summer sometime. Um, thanks again. And and wow, you every day seemingly something new. And yet on top of all that, we're shooting down balloons from the sky. We're saber rattling seemingly with China. We're doing, going through all, all these different gyrations. But then there's some legal issues that uh, have yet to be settled. And, and we hold such um, uh, esteem offices or, or we hold such things as the Supreme Court in a high, high lofty level. And we hold our our Congress in a high lofty level, but yet they're not making decisions to move forward and to resolve certain key issues regarding politicians who who need to uh, be held accountable. So that that's frustrating to me, and I, I know millions of others. That's why we wanted you here today to help resolve all this. Thanks so much. Glad to be here. Um, I wish I had better answers, but we'll <laughs> we'll, we'll give it our best. Well, well, let's start with uh, Trump's latest legal woes. It seems that um, uh, there's this pending indictment in Georgia, um, and I hope that uh, the, the Supreme, I mean, the, um, uh, let me see, uh, oh, the grand jury forewoman didn't dismantle things too much with her comments after they, do, they did their due diligence. I'm just perplexed now. Will will the district attorney go ahead and and prosecute him? I mean, we'll indict him. What, what what's going to happen? Right, uh, that's a great place to start. Um, one of only, of course, several uh, only one of several cases potentially uh, to be brought against Mr. Trump. Um, he's facing you know legal legal complications, legal challenges, not only in Georgia, but also in New York State and at the federal level. But let's start with with Georgia, um, because as you say, this was uh, very much in the news uh, recently. 
because of some, frankly, unfortunate uh, choices made by um, the a, a young woman who was the the uh, foreperson of of the grand jury. Um, so, um, a couple quick quick things to understand in Georgia. Uh, not not all states use grand juries at all. It's a choice. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they're not constitutionally obligated to use grand juries in criminal cases to either um, initiate or, um, you know, um, review indictments. Georgia happens to be a grand jury state. They they've chosen that path, and they actually in Georgia have two um, separate kinds of grand juries. Um, one is is. Uh, what they call a special investigatory or investigative grand jury. Um, This kind of grand jury is um, set up to help the prosecutor investigate what might be a complex possible criminal scenario. And of course, um, that's what we have here um, with all the various uh, shenanigans that were going on in in Georgia uh, around their uh, elections in the fall of, of 2020. So um, the, the DA in, in Fulton County um, brought together this investigative grand jury, and they did their job. They have special powers to subpoena witnesses, to obtain documents. They did all of that, and they've done their work. That, that grand jury has completed its work, and they made their final report to the judge, um, to, to, to the judge who would be overseeing this whole process. and. Um, the judge actually chose to release significant portions of that report, but uh, but also much of it was redacted, in particular the parts of the report that specifically suggested that certain kinds of criminal indictments would be appropriate. That was all redacted from the part of the report that the trial judge made public. Um, in the last week, of course, we know that this um, four-person went public um, you know, 15 minutes of fame, I guess everyone's got to have it. Mm-hmm. And um, she went on various TV shows and talked about some in kind of veiled terms. She was trying to be careful, but still she wanted her her moment in the sun. And, and she talked about some of what the grand jury um, did and felt. Um, fortunately for all of us, um, she stopped short of revealing anything that I think most legal experts would would find to be um, really damaging to a, a later criminal prosecution, right? If if she taints the community, the potential pool of jurors who might be called uh, later for a criminal trial, that would be that would be a real problem. And of course, the people who are facing potential indictments here um, are all going to claim that um, you know whatever happens, they're going to claim that what she did tainted any possibility of a fair trial. I think most legal experts looking at exactly what she said, um, it was a lot of veiled kind of statements and you know you had to kind of connect the dots. She didn't name names. So the odds that what she said would, would undermine a later prosecution, I think are relatively mm-hmm. low. Mm-hmm. Never know for sure, but I think it's relatively low. She shouldn't have done it. It was a mistake, but I think, I think we're gonna survive that. Um, but what happens next is kind of interesting. The prosecutor in Georgia, has to now call a second grand jury. She cannot herself issue indictments because Georgia is a state that requires indictments to be handed down by a grand jury. And the grand jury that just finished its work was not one that was there for the process 
of handing down indictments. They were there for the purpose of investigating and making their report. So now the DA will call a second grand jury, and this will be a more what we would call a more traditional grand jury that is there to actually consider and, and potentially hand down indictments. The prosecutor will clearly be telling that grand jury what she believes should be the appropriate list of, of case, uh, crimes and defendants. We all know that these grand juries rarely break with what the prosecutor recommends. So she will obviously have a great deal of sway with this second um, grand jury called for the purpose of, of issuing indictments. But they could decide at the end of the day um, to, to deviate from whatever she recommends. That'll be up to that second grand jury. And that's kind of now what we're waiting for. We're waiting for the announcement that she's going to call a second grand jury and go to that grand jury with a list of people who she thinks should be indicted uh, for violations of Georgia law. So someone who then takes to uh, social media to say, thank you for exonerating me. It's, it's obvious that I, I, in your eyes, did nothing wrong, and I'm now ready to close the book and move on with my life. Well, that was so premature, it's ridiculous. And it's all, that's, that's sheer nonsense. Um, that's all politics. That's all public relations. Um, and not, not surprising in any way. Right. Um, call it spin doctoring, if you will. Um, but no, actually, most legal experts think that there is a really good possibility, um, maybe maybe a probability, that uh, Mr. Trump may be a person who will be named um, as a potential uh, criminal defendant, and then it will be up to the second grand jury to decide yay or nay about that. Is is Garland is a well is our attorney general waiting to see what goes on in Georgia before bringing his indictments against certain individuals? So that's a great question, and I don't have obviously any inside information about that. I can speculate. Um, I, the thing to understand about the U.S. Department of Justice, and this would be true always, um, no matter who is you know the Attorney General, but it's even more true, I think, under an Attorney General like Merrick Garland, who who we know a lot about. Um, our Department of Justice is historically incredibly cautious about being perceived as taking actions that could be seen as politically motivated or as interfering with the political system, um, in particular with elections. And um, I think that um, that is almost certainly the reason why the US Department of Justice has moved so cautiously on two fronts, right? So there are two distinct federal investigations um, that involve Mr. Trump. One of them is the investigation over the classified documents that were taken in boxes and, and you know, stored somewhere at Mar-a-Lago. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then, you know, of course, Mr. Trump and his, his agents denied that they had these documents. So there's that as well. Uh, so there's that whole that that's one set of investigations is around the documents. The other one um, is, um, you know, an investigation that um, is examining what happened on January 6th. So I think probably since the last time we talked, um, the January 6th House committee finished its work doing the congressional investigation of January 6th. And at the very end of that process, literally on the way out the door as that, as that house ended its 
work in December of 2022, um, just, just a month and a half or so ago, uh, that committee issued um, specific recommendations that um, Mr. Trump, uh, in the committee's view, was properly indictable on four separate charges in connection with what happened on January 6th including the charge of, of inciting an insurrection. Mm. Um, that was a recommendation, right? The House committee didn't have any power to actually get, get those charges filed, but they specifically recommended to the Justice Department that, that those charges should be filed. Um, that is the other federal investigation that's going on in the Department of Justice. And what, what Mr. Garland has done is he's appointed a special, um, a special prosecutor, a guy named Jack Smith, who um, had previously done work at The Hague on war crimes. He's a very respected um, lawyer. And um, Jack Smith is now running both of those investigations, the one about the documents, classified documents, and the one about what happened on January 6th. And both of those could lead to charges against Mr. Trump. Both of them have problems. Um, in, the, in the view of a cautious attorney general like Merrick Garland, both of those have problems. On the documents. You know, it was uh, extremely damaging, I think, in, in the context of, of a prosecutor trying to decide whether to go forward with a case like this against Mr. Trump, that uh, we now know that, um, that Joe Biden, when he was vice president, walked out with some documents that uh, he should not have that were classified. And uh, even Mike Pence, you know, there's been some stuff found um, in his possession, not, not nearly as much. Um, and, and, you know, the scale of what Mr. Trump had um, dwarfs the scale of what was found um, in the possession of either uh, President Biden or former Vice President Pence. Nevertheless, it, op, as the optics go, it makes indicting Trump for the documents much more difficult. Um, you know, people are going to say, why pick on him when you're not going after Biden? Or, well, of course, Biden is president, so the Justice Department would leave him alone anyway. But you know, they're not going to do anything while he's president. That's their general policy. But um, nevertheless, you can see how that complicated mm -hmm. the the dynamics of, of that investigation tremendously. It's really, it, it, I don't know, I, I don't know if I'd use the word pathetic, but you know. Yeah, go ahead and use that word. These are <laughs> These rules exist for a reason. Classified documents should not be wandering out of the White House like this. Right. And and nobody should be doing it. And Biden shouldn't have done it. And Pence shouldn't have done it. And Trump shouldn't have done it. None of them should have done it. But the the what aboutism here, you know, it's so glaring that um, that's going to make it really difficult. On the January sixth side, mm -hmm. the complication there is really about how to get the evidence. So there are a number of roadblocks that have been put in place, um, or at least have been raised by people who are in the crosshairs of this special investigation on the criminal side, right? The January 6th committee did what they did, but what they did is not part of a true criminal investigation. Now it's in the hands of the Justice Department, and they're trying to round up all this evidence. And they're getting increasing claims of privilege, either executive privilege um, by people who say what they were doing was you know, part of their role as a member of the executive branch, um, advising the president or the president himself uh, at the time. Um, but then there's also another kind of related and very interesting claim that's been raised that um, certain members of Congress, so there's a 
um, congressperson from Pennsylvania who was very central to discussions about trying to get the election overturned. Um, of course, Pennsylvania being one of the handful of states where this was really, you know, being pushed by by Trump and his friends. And, um, you know, this this Pennsylvania congressman has like, you know, he's got something like, um, you know, thousands of texts and other other emails on his phone and, you know, in his possession. And the special prosecutor wants access to that information to try to work towards possibly um, filing charges related to January 6th. And and this person is saying, I don't have to turn over any of that because I am protected by another type of, of protection. As a sitting member of Congress, you cannot um, you you cannot obtain this information if it was part of my uh, my official duties as a member of Congress. There is a protection for Congresspersons. Um, a kind of privilege where they don't have to turn over that kind of deliberative information, anything relating to their work. And so the question is, was this related to his work as a member of Congress or was it not? And that's a legal question that needs to be resolved before the special. Pro- it's kind of tying the hands of the special prosecutor at this point, because right now they can't get access to all of these, all of these documents, all of these copies of these messages. And, you know, in the larger context, you pull back to the sort of, you know, looking down at the forest level, this is all part of a standard operating procedure that uh, Mr. Trump and his um, friends have pursued. Mr. Trump in particular is famous, infamous, for um, throwing up legal roadblocks in an effort to run out the clock. And, um, you know, to delay, delay, delay until people just get tired of it or run out of, you know, time, energy, resources, whatever. That's that's been his legal strategy for his whole life. And this is all part of that is to just slow it down. And in this particular instance, it becomes problematic because the Justice Department is so historically cautious about doing anything that could be seen as affecting an election. So what's going on is that Mr. Trump, who is now declared he's going to be a candidate right for 2024, he is been running out the clock in the hopes that at some point the Justice Department is going to say, okay, he's now a candidate in a presidential election, a new, a new presidential election, and therefore we cannot, we cannot actually go after him at this point. That's really what's going on. And these claims of privilege are all part of a very deliberate strategy to push this out long enough that the Justice Department will feel uncomfortable pursuing criminal charges against him as a candidate for president. Well, the exception, go ahead, Clarence. I was gonna just do a quick ID for those who just joined us, uh, the voice you just heard. Um, And you have to agree that the the, the scholar in him is just rising to the top now. And uh, this was award-winning IU law professor, uh, Joseph Hoffman, elaborating on just a, a surface number of issues uh, confronting former President uh, uh, Donald Trump, uh, and and I and before I hand it off to William, I just want to say I think what may undo him or or finally hold him accountable will be all those thousands and thousands of bottles of Trump water that he just stuck a label on bottled water out of a grocery store and didn't properly uh, identify those bottles as other manufactured bottles of water when he was down in Ohio. So William, at that note, uh, go ahead. Yeah, I was gonna say the, uh, Professor Hoffman, the exception to what you 
mentioned about DOJ being cautious would be James Comey. Yep. You're probably thinking yep. about that already. Of course. Anyhow, um, and, and, and of course that what, what happened just, you know, on the, on the eve of that election, um, we're talking about the, the, the Trump Clinton election, you know, that, that was um, regrettable. Um, I'll, I'll say pathetic again. Um, and, um, you know, the, the Justice Department quite properly took a lot of, of heat for, for that decision. Uh, to be honest, they, they probably felt they were in a no-win situation where um, saying there was nothing to be investigated or there was something to be investigated about Clinton's emails, you know, I, they probably felt like they either way they were going to be accused of, of interference at that point. But yes, most people see that as a very regrettable example of where the Justice Department did not, in fact, uh, properly uh, maintain their neutrality in the context of a pending election. So, yeah, I agree with you, William. That was that was really I mean, and, and Merrick, Merrick Garland is indeed a more cautious person. And so he's probably bending over backwards not to make that, uh, that kind of mistake again. You know, there, uh, there seems to be a group of Republicans who had the intestinal fortitude to do the right thing uh, during that, those few months when Trump was trying to steal the election, uh, including Mike Pence. But when it comes to just going before a Congress or, or a grand jury or anybody else to, to talk about what they did, they seem to go to to just go back to the the same old Republican line. Yep, I, I, I want to do yeah, and and if I could just jump in, William, I you know you're making a really good point, and and of course Mr. Pence at this point is actually it's really interesting. He's trying to argue that he shouldn't have to testify because he too is covered by the congressional privilege because on that particular day his job was president you know, uh, w was to preside over the over the Congress, which is kind of nonsense. I want to do a shout out to someone you might never have heard of. There's a former federal judge named Mike Lutig, L-U-T-T-I-G. And Judge Lutig, um, <clears throat> retired Judge Lutig, excuse me, he um, he's the one that Pence called just on or about uh, January 6th to get advice. You know, can I really do this? Can I really you know, stop the election results from being certified. And, um, you know, Lutig is, is someone with the most bona fide conservative Republican credentials you could ever imagine, um, you know, going all the way back. He advised Pence, no, you can't do it. And ever since, Lutig has been absolutely vocal about what went, what went south on January 6th and how, you know, how illegal and, and, criminal it was. And he's now written uh, a piece just the other day saying that Pence's claim of congressional privilege is nonsense. Um, and so I, I just want to shout out to someone who actually is standing by his convictions and, you know, probably has lost a lot of friends over it. But so what? He's doing the right thing. And he's trying to get this to, to, to be resolved in a manner that ensures that someone like Trump will never again be near the levers of power. So I respect that. One of Mike Pence's, uh, and actually you 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 did uh, pre-answer my question, but one of Mike Pence's chances of being successful in, in his uh, attempt to not testify here. Um, 
the strictly legal answer is that um, this none of this was about um, you know congressional deliberations in the normal sense that we use that word. So uh, neither Pence nor um, anyone else, for that matter, should be able to um, claim that that these these documents, these communications, are in some way privileged or protected. Um, I can't predict what a judge is going to do. Um, we have a lot of judges now who were placed on the bench um, by President Trump who um, are already demonstrating a, a, a kind of um, <clears throat> tendency to judge these things politically rather than, than legally. I hate to say that, but you know we, we'll probably be talking in a little bit about um, what's going on in, in Texas, for example, Texas. Over, over the um, abortion pill. Um, you know, these are examples of, of, of the worst kind of forum shopping, getting cases in front of judges who, um, who seem to be pretty committed to the party line, so to speak, of, of the person who appointed them. Um, so I can't predict how, in the end, the, the rules will be resolved. But I think, legally speaking, the argument that any of this stuff about overturning a legally certified election you know, and following the advice of, of bogus lawyers like like Eastman or, you know, some of the other crazy Giuliani, some of the other crazies who were making this stuff up on uh, on and before January 6th. The idea that any of that is what's meant by, um, you know, protecting the, the, the solemnity and secrecy of congressional deliberations. That's just nonsense. As as Judge Ludic said, it, it's just nonsense. And it should not be a, an argument that's upheld by any court, but we're going to have to wait and see. Courts have not always done the right thing. Would have been better for Mike Pence to declare his candidacy with the hopes of not being drawn into all this because he's now a presidential candidate or his... his... That's an interesting thought. Um, the problem with that for Pence is I, no one is thinking that he is a target of this investigation. Hmm. And I think the Justice Department's traditional historic reticence to interfere in an election is about interfering with someone by making them a target of the right. investigation. Pence is nothing other than a witness. Right. And, you know, that's that's the Nixon case. I mean, that, that goes all the way back to Watergate, where the Supreme Court said uh, even a sitting president, even a sitting president, has to be a witness and has to provide evidence that would be relevant to a criminal case. They can't use the, the duties of their job as a uh, shield against that kind of request for what, what information they have. So I don't think that would probably help Mr. Pence avoid any kind of subpoena or other, you know, we, we've got precedent for that one. You know, it's interesting that you say that he was a witness, but uh, Mike Pence and members of his family are survivors from January 6th. Um, yep. They were they were hell bent on on uh, per their words doing him great harm. Um, so it's it's just interesting how when you define the word loyal, just how the extent of his loyalty or or whatever this is to, to Donald Trump. Okay, let's, let's talk about the release of forty four thousand hours of uh, video footage to a right wing. Um, Without question, everybody would define Fox News as as a right wing vehicle, a, a platform uh, for politicians. But forty four thousand hours of tapes released by of all people, Kevin McCarthy, 
who went a 15 round knockdown drag out just to become speaker of the house one of his first few acts is to release all this footage and i think i heard today he said his purpose was that all of america needs to know oh there needs to be transparency for all of america or something yeah and i'm thinking seriously uh your thoughts on did he did he cross the line in releasing footage which could detail for some how security measures are enacted at our capital uh what did he potentially do by releasing that footage well he demonstrated um something we already knew which is that he's completely beholden to the hard right you know crazy wing of his party who uh who's who's you know whose resistance to his um becoming speaker almost prevented it from happening. He cut a deal. Um, There's no secret about this, that part of what was requested specifically by Matt Goetz, the the leader of the crazies, um, at the time of of, of the election of House Speaker, um, part of what was demanded by Matt Goetz was that uh, McCarthy would release these tapes. He made a promise in order to, as part of the, the sort of list of demands that he gave into, he made a promise, McCarthy did, and, um, and he's now fulfilling the promise. I mean, that, that, that much is, is not even contested, um, that this is, this is, he did this now because he was fulfilling a promise he made to the crazies who were, who were hell-bent on opposing him and holding out. Um, did it cross a line? I don't, I haven't heard any any credible argument yet uh, suggesting that uh, McCarthy releasing these tapes was was you know a criminal act or anything like that. These these um, these were not um, classified documents or anything of the sort. Um, is it possible that the release of these documents, I'm uh, sorry, these tapes, um, will um, undermine the ongoing effort by the Justice Department. You know, we've had hundreds of prosecutions, I think somewhere in somewhere north of 600 now, mm-hmm. of people participating in January 6th. I, I have a colleague actually who spent, uh, who was working in the Justice Department, a friend who, who you know, spent basically the last uh, three years, um, or two years, sorry, last two years doing nothing but January 6th prosecutions. And there are many more to go. We're not anywhere near the end. And could the release of these tapes undermine uh, the, some of those prosecutions by um, by revealing information that um, will make it more difficult for prosecutors to uh, get people to plead guilty or to um, or, or or to get them convicted at trial? Um, yes. Could it taint a jury? Yes. Could it? It could have all sorts of negative effects. Um, you know, and McCarthy ought to be held politically accountable for that. I think it's kind of outrageous. Um, it's, it's, it's also kind of outrageous that he didn't just give it to Fox News. You know, Fox, Fox for all of their um, various levels of evil, they, they do have a news department that actually has some credible journalists in it. Um, but this was given to Tucker Carlson specifically, mm-hmm. which, you know, that, that's like, it's the worst possible outrage to to give this to someone who um, plays as fast and loose with the truth as as he does. But that's because Tucker Carlson is no fan of McCarthy and was critical of him and and uh, basically was, um, you know, on the side of not confirming him as as uh, Speaker of the House. 
And, and this is, you know, an act by McCarthy to suck up to someone who's been one of his biggest critics. And, um, you know, it, it's all it's all just pathetic. I keep using that word tonight, but it's it's all pathetic. Um, but I don't think it has probably too many legal repercussions for um, for McCarthy. Yes, arguably, there could be some detail there about about capital security. But my guess is there probably isn't much. I mean, that was such a unique event. I, I, I don't think I don't think any of the normal protocols were probably being followed uh, very much on January yeah. 6th. Right. And that was um, uh, go ahead. I was going to say that was pointed out um, as soon as they were released. There, there were procedures used when the committee, the January 6th committee wanted to air. They had to first notify and seek permission and get that clearance. But then to just bring the whole trove of it and just dump it at the foot of, of, uh, of Tucker Carlson, that that was I don't know, beyond just common sense, but uh, yeah, yeah. Well, he, 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 McCarthy sold his soul to become Speaker of the House, and this yeah. was part of the, this was part of paying the bill. This was yeah. part of paying the bill. William, um, talking about another Supreme Court case that has, uh, you know, broad implications. Professor Hoffman, correct me if I summarize this incorrectly. So the North Carolina Supreme Court struck down some extreme gerrymandering by the Republican led by the Republican legislature. The legislature uh, kicked it up to the Supreme Court and their argument is that the state Supreme Court should have no say so in that whole process. Is that essentially what, what happened or what, where we yep, are now? That is essentially what happened. Um, so there has been a fringe legal theory bouncing around, and I mean kind of out there on the fringe of kind of crazy lawyer legal theories um, for some time called the independent state legislature theory. And it's based on the text of the uh, elections clause of the U.S. Constitution. So, so this is a really interesting kind of um, area of law right we have federal elections for the president of the united states for congress for you know for these federal offices um but our constitution gives most not all but most of the power over how those elections are conducted gives that power to the states not to the federal government so the federal government doesn't run federal elections the cons the constitutional elections clause says and i quote the times, places, and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof, but the Congress may at any time by law make or alter such regulations, except as to the places of choosing senators. So that's that's the main, you know, that's the main language. And um, and and this is seen as governing all federal, you know, all elections for federal officers, including, including. Um, the, the way that electoral college people are, are chosen. So, so basically it says the time, place and manner shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof. And the independent state legislature theory, this crazy fringe theory says, well, based on that language, only the legislature of the state gets to decide such questions about how federal elections are run. Only the state legislature meaning the state Supreme Court can't do anything about it. The state executive can't do anything about it. Only the legislature can. That's the independent state legislature theory. Of course, however, in every state, state legislatures 
their very existence and the rules under which they operate are subject to the state constitution. This is not something new. This is not some novel theory. This is something we all know to be true, that state legislatures have to follow their own state constitutions. That's how state Supreme Courts get involved. In, the, in North Carolina, the legislature drew a, a map, uh, you know, a congressional map, the state Supreme Court looked at that map and said, oh, this map violates fair election principles in the North Carolina Constitution. Therefore, in our role as the guardian of our state constitution, we're going to get rid of that map. We write a new one, make a new map legislature. They were simply enforcing the state constitution. The independent le state legislature theory says the state Supreme Court can't do that. Even if the legislature violates the state constitution, the state Supreme Court cannot say anything about it because this is completely in the hands of the legislature. Now, what would that mean? It would mean that a state legislature, let's imagine one controlled by say the Republican party in a state, in a contested state like Georgia, like Pennsylvania, like Arizona, Wisconsin. A state legislature under this theory could simply make the rules whatever they want and declare whoever they want to be the winner in that state of, of, of that election. And the theory of independent state legislature says, well, the state Supreme Court can't, can't intervene, can't do anything about that. Uh, so this is just, you know, a few years ago, this would have been seen as such a lunatic fringe theory that nobody would have taken it seriously. But now we have a, a US Supreme Court that has decided this is worthy of their attention and potentially worthy of them accepting this fringe theory as the proper interpretation of the elections clause of the constitution. It is scary as hell. I, yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm here to tell you. Now, having said all of that, that doesn't mean that the federal Supreme Court wouldn't potentially be able to step in and, and do something if a state were to just, if state legislature were to do something crazy in connection with a federal election. The federal government has some role to play here as well. But boy, it stacks the deck. Uh, this independent state legislature theory means that a crazy legislature could get away with doing all kinds of crazy stuff. And then you'd have to count on the US Supreme Court somehow intervening to stop it. And we know the court doesn't like to do that. They don't like to tell states what to do. Um, but but that's that's what this case is about. You know, I hope and pray that that this Supreme Court doesn't kind of step off the deep end here and make a decision that's going to upend, uh, you know, 200 plus years of settled understanding of what the elections clause means and of the role of state Supreme Courts and state constitutions. The idea that a state legislature can can get away with blatant violations of their own constitutions and that no one can call them on it. In, in the state, that's just a very scary proposition, I have to say. Well, let's move over to the uh, state of Wisconsin. Um, mm. They're embroiled in a Supreme Court election case themselves. Um, can you elaborate on that? Yeah, that one's pretty simple, actually. Um, so there, there is a vacancy, a, a seat that will be up for um, election in Wisconsin. They elect their Supreme Court justices and um, the election, they've already had the primary. The primary is an open primary, meaning that everyone runs all together. And then the top two candidates out of that open primary have a runoff. The open primary was held last week. And um, 
the top vote getter was a um, a, a Democratic uh, appointed judge um, who um, has has made it relatively clear. Um, so there are a number of big legal issues in Wisconsin under Wisconsin law that are kind of out there pending. Wisconsin, for example, has a particularly kind of draconian anti-abortion statute that was enacted a long time ago. And the question that sort of waits to be resolved is now that Roe versus Wade has been overruled, you know, during during the Roe versus Wade era, this old Wisconsin law had no effect at all. It, it was it was clear that it didn't comply with the U.S. Constitution. But now that Roe versus Wade is gone, does this old anti-abortion statute in Wisconsin kick in and prohibit basically all abortions in Wisconsin? Um, the the that's an issue the Wisconsin Supreme Court will have to decide because it's a matter of what state law says. Um, and then, of course, there's all the questions about elections in Wisconsin. You know, in 2020, there were a series of very difficult election quest related questions, whether the polls should remain open beyond a certain time because of irregularities, right? All sorts of things were happening in Wisconsin. And, um, and again, the state Supreme Court, <laughs> until we get the decision about the independent state legislature doctrine, uh, the, the, the Wisconsin Supreme Court would typically have the say over a lot of those election questions. So these are huge questions. And right. Wisconsin being a, a, a borderline purple state, um, you know, how their Supreme Court tips is, is potentially gonna make all the difference, maybe even in a future presidential election. So who gets this seat? Wisconsin, without with this vacancy, Wisconsin's Supreme Court is evenly divided between people, judges you would call liberals and judges you would call conservatives. Um, as I said, in the, in the open primary, the top vote getter was someone who would describe as a liberal. Um, and she's indicated that she's very skeptical that this anti-abortion law has any merit anymore in Wisconsin, it's from like a hundred years ago. Um, the number two vote getter was Mr. Trump's chosen um, candidate, someone who actually was on the state Supreme Court, then lost in an election and began working for the Republican National Committee and now is running again for Supreme Court justice and is a friend and crony of Mr. Trump. So um, that will be the runoff and the runoff will be um, in April, early April. Um, and then that that will determine whether the uh, Wisconsin Supreme Court um, will be a, a, a court that is, you know, would tend to be more liberal or more conservative. And that will probably have a lot to do with how the abortion question is resolved in Wisconsin, as well as future election questions. So huge. I, I, I saw it described the other day as the most important election in the year 2023 is the April election for this vacancy on the Wisconsin right. Supreme Court because of its national implications. It's speaking, it's speaking, really, of, speaking of abortion, should we quickly touch on what's going on with the uh, abortion pill case? In that's exactly where we were going. Uh, I'll save my monologue, go ahead. No, you <laughs> go ahead, William, I wanna, I wanna hear you. <laughs> well, what, what I was gonna say is, is they, they seem to be taking a methodical approach to banning abortions. First, they went after abortions in the clinic. And now they're going after the pharmaceutical uh, uh, process. So what, it seems that one person, one person is going to have the power to ban those pills nationwide. That seems like too much power concentrated into one person. Yeah, I mean, 
Yes and no. Let me put it this way. It's not unusual in our modern um, system of, of, of laws that um, at least initially um, a, a single federal judge um, can make a decision that can have binding national implications. That has happened a number of times. It's not that unusual. In fact, in fact, there's even a system in place in the federal system, in the federal judicial system, for deciding the most appropriate assignment of a case that might arise in many different parts of the country to a single judge for that first decision. Because, I, I mean, to be honest, in, in many such cases, you, you, you wouldn't want to have 100 judges in 100 district courts around the country, each making their own decision. There would be a kind of chaos that would result from that. What's, what's unusual here, and this is kind of a key point, what's unusual here, and we're talking about the lawsuit challenging the federal government's certification approval of the drug that is used, the key drug that is used for medicated uh, medical abortions. That lawsuit was filed deliberately, and, and it's not the first time this has happened, in a district court in Amarillo, Texas. Why? Because that court happens to have only one district judge. And that district judge is a Trump appointee who was a noted anti-abortion activist before he was placed on the federal bench. Of course, over the objection of all the Democrats. Um, he, he was someone who worked for an anti-abortion organization. And um, anyway, he's, he's now on the federal bench, thanks to Mr. Trump. And he sits in a district where he is the only uh, federal district judge, which means that if you can get the case filed in his district, you know which judge it's going to go to. There is no alternative there. And that's why this case was filed in his, in his district, to ensure that this is the guy who would get to make the initial ruling that would at least initially bind the entire nation. I think it will be, quite frankly, shocking if he doesn't uh, render a decision that will ban the, uh, you know, the use of this medication. That's not the end of the story, of course. From there, the case will be appealed to, uh, it will go to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. That circuit is notoriously conservative and typically has upheld decisions by this judge and others. Um, and from there, it would be appealed to the US Supreme Court. I note, by the way, that um, just this past week, a kind of countersuit was filed in Washington state, trying to argue that the federal restrictions on the use of this medication are too restrictive and should be loosened. This is, I, I think this is an effort to get two cases going on parallel tracks one in conservative, you know, red state Texas, and the other in uh, liberal blue state Washington, in the hopes that whatever happens, the Supreme Court will have to resolve that conflict, um, you know, in short order. Um, but, but, you know, having said that it will ultimately be up to the Supreme Court, I, I can't predict what they're going to do. Um, and I do know this, that, that once the Texas judge makes this ruling that we're all sort of dreading and anticipating, it's going to do real havoc in the short term because it will be the law. It will, it will govern, uh, that first decision will govern the nation until it's up on appeal. And that could take a year or two to make its way up to the Supreme Court. So yeah, um, again, very scary stuff. And 
if you want access to that medication, you better get it quick um, because um, in, in very short time, you may not be able to get it for at least a couple of years. And, and to be clear, is this mm. uh, the medication that is uh, defined as the morning after pill? Um, you know, now, now you're in a realm that I'm not that familiar with. There, there are, it's, it's the technical word for this is mifeprisone. Hmm. Uh, it's one of two drugs that are used for medically induced abortions. So no, I, I don't think, I don't think this is the one that is typically referred to as the morning after pill. This is one that you could take sometime after you're pregnant, but it produces along in conjunction with another pill, it produces uh, medically induced in abortion. So, so that's critical, of course, for, for women who live in states where there are no longer um, abortion providers, clinics who will do this. They can still get a medicated uh, abortion by the use of these pills. Mm -hmm. That option um, is, is now at serious, uh, in serious jeopardy based on this, this Texas case. We'll, we'll do a quick ID and then we have time for about two more questions. But if you've been listening to Bring It On this evening, we're having uh, and a very insightful conversation with IU Law Professor Joseph Hoffman, award-winning scholar and Harry Pratter professor, professor of Law Emeritus. Uh, we've been covering a variety of issues uh, which are before the courts as well as in the court of public opinion. Um, there, is a, there is a case involving social media uh, that the U.S. Supreme Court is currently Considering Professor Hoffman, can you update us on on your on what's going on there and your impressions on what you see? Yeah, so um, so just a very quick um, background. The, the most products in in the world, um, everything from cars to planes to Coke bottles, whatever. If, if a product um, ends up hurting somebody. Um, then, you know, there can be a lawsuit over that, mm -hmm. right? People can sue and recover damages. Um, for most new technologies, when, 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 when railroads became a big thing, um, there were a lot of accidents. People got run over by trains and so forth. And for a while, um, the government, the federal government, um, insulated uh, railroads from, from civil liability as a way of trying to encourage the development of a new technology. Same thing was true with automobiles when they first became a big thing. Um, th there were so many accidents, so many lawsuits. Um, and then the government said, no, no, we, we, we can't have the, you know, we can't have Ford Motor Company going out of business because they're getting sued all the time. We need to encourage this baby industry. When the internet became a big thing, Congress passed uh, a law called Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. And it protects, um, internet companies from uh, liability for the information that, um, that, that flows to their platforms and, and gets publicized. So probably an even better analogy is like a newspaper. A newspaper publishes something about you that's false and they know it, they can be sued. This is what's happening right now with Fox News and the lawsuit filed by the Dominion company who makes the voting machines. Um, you know, just as an aside, there was big revelations in that case just in this past week that Fox News or Fox, the Fox network knew that they were publishing false information. And, and that's going to make it very likely that Dominion may win that case against Fox. But Internet companies who publish information are an exception to this general rule that you can get sued if, if what you do hurts people. 
internet companies are protected by Section 230, which was adopted in the early days of the internet to encourage a new technology and keep it from being you know, killed in the crib, so to speak, by, by litigation. The question now is, does that law protect companies like Twitter, Google, you know, you name it, any number of, of large, uh, you know, internet companies, does it protect them from liability when they, when they either publish information, because they're the ones putting it out there for the world to see, um, and in, or, or even steering people to that information through the, uh, through the algorithms that these companies use to decide what you see when you, you know, pop up your phone and go to that platform? The question is, you know, can they be sued for the harm that they cause? And um, the two cases that the Supreme Court just heard arguments in, and they'll decide between now and the end of their term in June, are both cases involving people who were killed by terrorists in circumstances where the terrorists were able to plot and connect with each other and encourage others to join them through information that these social media websites were publishing and in some cases even promoting through the algorithms. Um, and the companies are saying, no, 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 we're protected by Section 230. You can't sue us for this. We're not the ones writing this pro-terrorist information. We're just passing it along. You know, we're just the, the intermediary, so to speak. Social media companies really love to kind of get the benefits of provocative information, um, information that otherwise might be called hate speech or hateful speech. They love to put that stuff out there because it gets hits, it gets, uh, it gets them attention, it makes their ad revenues go up and so forth. But then they don't want responsibility for the consequences of of having that information out there. And in some cases, as I said, even steering people to see that kind of hateful information. So this case is the first case where the Supreme Court is gonna to have to decide, or these two cases, I should say. Um, the Supreme Court's gonna to have to decide whether social media platforms really are so fully protected by Section 230 or whether they can be held responsible when what they do, and they're aware of what they're doing, right? It's not an accident. Um, if, if they can be sued when what they do actually leads to people, in, this, in these cases, people actually being murdered. Hmm. Might this have um, uh, any impact on, on Twitter being recently purchased and, and the impact that Elon Musk can have as the, this is a powerful, large platform. So could yep. this have impact on him? It, it can, and it can have impact on the broader debate over the role that these large social media companies play in uh, politics, in, in dissemination of information. You know, the fact that Twitter banned Trump, but now he's coming, you know, now he's been allowed back, although he's not really doing it on Twitter because he has his own platform. Um, you know, Facebook's role in dissemination of um, misinformation, disinformation, some of it coming from incredibly dangerous places like, you know, uh, former. Uh, KGB uh, operatives in St. Petersburg putting stuff out about our elections. Uh, you know, we know the damage that can be caused. And uh, yes, yes, the short answer to your question is what the Supreme Court does in these two cases has potential implications for social media companies being li held liable for harmful information in all sorts of other contexts. It, it, to put it bluntly, if the court says they're not protected by Section 230 in these two cases, those companies are going to have to spend a lot more money and put in a lot more effort to do a better job of regulating the information that goes out over their privileged 
incredibly powerful platforms. They're going to have to do a better job of controlling that information. Well, on that note, we're, we'll have to sort of call it uh, today. Um, time is of the essence, as they say, as we have run out of time, which only means we, have, need, we need to invite you back, Professor Hoffman, to discuss uh, perhaps the, the ongoing legal confusion about our asylum policies at the Mexican border and other Supreme Court cases that no doubt will surface between now and then. Uh, it's always, always, always a delight to have you because you just really have a way of just making very complex legal cases somewhat simple for the simple minds that William and I possess. So <laughs> thank hey, you. Let, let me jump in there real quick. <laughs> Professor sure. Hoffman, can I email you a question that we didn't have time to get to tonight? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Okay. Okay. And it's, always, it's always great to talk to you about, about these matters. You know, we, we, we really don't ever run out of things to talk about, do we? No, no. And, <laughs> and uh, there's never a dull moment in America, it seems. Um, and I think uh, the recent tragic events in Ohio, we're going to see, boy, some litigation from that um, with the train derailment and all. But our thanks to Professor Joseph Hoffman for joining us this evening to discuss the legal implications of several uh, numerous political uh, current cases um, uh, in our courts. And we are always pleased that he enriches us and that he comes and affords us time here on Bring It On. Bring It On has an open submission policy. So if you have any ideas for this program, let's hear it. Send an email directly to our volunteer staff. The address is bringiton at wfhb.org. We want to make sure we share any and everything affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. The email address again, Bring it on at WFHB.org. And bring it on as executive producers, yours truly, Clarence Boone, and tonight's assistant producers, William Hosea, show consultant and WFHB News Department Directors, Kate Young, program engineer, Chantal LaFontaine, and original theme music was created by Jamil Effiam, with additional background tracks by David Baker. For WFHB, I'm Clarence Boone. And I'm William Hosea. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 6 p.m. for another edition of Bring It On, right here on your community radio station, WFHB. You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.